Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with me, Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I should say welcome back to the Real Clear Values podcast because it has been a while. We took an unexpected break, unexpected because I got sick when I was in the Caribbean a couple of months ago and it involved some days in hospital, nothing too major, recovered very well but it did create some delays, it knocked things off track a little bit and I wanted to be absolutely certain when I came back to the podcast that I could be fully ready to do so, so we can charge forward in a sustainable manner. So today's episode, I speak with Sean Fear, who is an academic at the University of Leeds, my alma mater, and he focuses a lot on Vietnam and particularly the Vietnam War. Sean speaks Vietnamese, which is very helpful in bringing Vietnamese perspectives to the West. Why did I want to talk about Vietnam? Well, I'd recently been watching the Ken Burns and Lynn Novick documentary on the Vietnam War, fantastic documentary series. And I really wanted to make sense of the values behind the war and dig more into the different perspectives. So we know a lot about the American perspective and much of the Vietnam War is focused on America in the war. We see all the films that have been that have been created about the Vietnam War. We're very familiar with a lot of those films. They've been very popular in Western culture. But what about the Vietnamese perspective and the perspective of the Vietnamese people in relation to the Vietnam War? So looking at the the war from the Vietnamese perspective through the lens of values is something that really interested me. And Sean is a great candidate to talk about this because of his language ability, his experience in being in Vietnam, in speaking with Vietnamese people and gathering information that is not typically available to us in the West. You'll probably notice that this episode is longer than a typical episode. I wanted to keep it as such because Sean goes into a lot of detail. We get right under the fingernails of this and I didn't want to chop things out and edit things to oversimplify them. Sean doesn't let me do that whatsoever in this episode, which is great because I don't want oversimplifications. I want people to listen to the nuances and the complexities of the issues at hand. So a very good interview with Sean, if I do say so myself, but most of the credit for that, of course, is down to him and his knowledge and expertise because he's bringing things to light in the West that are not very well known. So if you need to listen to it in more than one sitting, by all means do so, but I highly recommend that you do. It's a very enlightening episode if you have any interest whatsoever in the Vietnam War. Enjoy. Sean Fear, thank you so much for your time on the Real Clear Values podcast. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's my pleasure. Sean, you are a lecturer in international history at the University of Leeds, my alma mater, which I was very happy, very privileged to study out many years ago. You weren't a, an academic there, you weren't a lecturer there when, when I was there. But from my experience in studying history, I was very interested in Vietnam when I was at school. And you do a lot of teaching and research in relation to the Vietnam War. And it's something that really lit a fire in me when I was about 15, 16 years old. And I think it, it was a, quite a seminal moment for my interest in history where I got very angry about what happened in Vietnam, even though I wasn't there, even though it wasn't happening at the time, it really stirred up this this fire within me. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity I have to speak with you today about Vietnam and about the Vietnam War, and particularly from the Vietnamese perspective as well, because that's something that 
that you are particularly apt to talk about given your own background. So before we dive into the, the details of, of the war itself, I've got to ask about your interest in, in Vietnam and the, the Vietnamese war. How did it all start for you? Well, I suppose that fire that you mentioned for me was lit just a little bit later. Um, I didn't really spend much time thinking or writing about Vietnam until uh, towards the end of my undergraduate degree. Uh, I was a student at the University of Toronto, um, and I initially was quite interested in, in uh, American foreign policy history, which obviously uh, drew me to engaging with Vietnam, at least to some extent. I mean, it, it just looms so large. Uh, in recent American uh, foreign policy debates. Um, I was fortunate to have very good advisors who suggested that uh, it would really be worthwhile and, uh, and beneficial to uh, think about learning the Vietnamese language. Um, and so I did a, a kind of summer program in the United States after I completed my undergraduate degree, uh, but it really wasn't until I went to Vietnam and just at, at first initially, just tried to have whatever sort of conversations I could with people there uh, in my then very poor Vietnamese uh, to learn more about their own history, their family history. Um, that, I think, is when uh, the complexity of the conflict really became apparent to me, but also just how um, interesting it was, I suppose, and how much, um, maybe I'll say this, how much there still is about Vietnamese history and uh, thinking about the Vietnam War as primarily an episode in Vietnamese history um, that um, that we we still have left to say uh, in, in English scholarship, I suppose. I would have been quite surprised, 20-year-old me, to know that I'd be spending my time um, in Vietnam, speaking Vietnamese, teaching Vietnamese history. Um, but once I had a chance to spend some time over there, it, it, it really just drew me in. Yeah, how interesting, how interesting. And th th there's nothing like going to a country and where they don't speak English and speaking to the people in their own language. I had that experience in Madagascar, albeit in a different context entirely, but, but the, it really is quite incredible how you can understand people on their own terms by speaking to them in, in their language. And really, really incredible as well, Sean, what strikes me is that being a historian, historians rely a lot on primary sources. So you were able to speak to people and draw on their experience as primary source material. You, you're not entirely beholden to, to what's been written down or what's come out of the US government, et cetera. Yes, that's true. And that is a, a part of my, uh, my research. I've been fortunate to speak with people on a kind of formal interview basis who are directly involved in the conflict. Uh, I also draw heavily on Vietnamese language uh, official government documents, which are more and more available to scholars at archives in Vietnam. Um, I look closely at Vietnamese language print media from the wartime period, um, especially in South Vietnam, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about later, I think. Um, but there is a, a kind of new cohort, I suppose, of historians uh, who write in English but are at least proficient in uh, in the Vietnamese language and who are able to tap into these sources uh, in a way that just wasn't really possible as the war was still going on. Yeah, fantastic. It's fantastic that you're able to have that that perspective and, and that insight from that. So, so let's talk about the Vietnam War itself then. Let's really set the scene in terms of what life was like in Vietnam, what was happening in Vietnam before the Vietnam War as, as we know it, with America going in to support the South against the North, what became the Viet Cong, 
what what is the backdrop to the Vietnam War? What what's happening there? Because I think it's really important that we that we get to grips with that. And and this is this is really where we 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 start to unpick and understand the full context of the war and whether it, it was ever likely to succeed or not in the first place. Yeah, such um, such an important question, Tom. Uh, a complicated as uh, one as well. And uh, I'll I'll try not to keep you here all evening. Um, you know, one question where historians still disagree or where there's even still some uncertainty, I suppose, is when the Vietnam War even formally began. Um, I, I suppose I wouldn't be a historian if I didn't insist that we immediately jump back uh, further back into the past. Um, but I, I think probably it's the French colonial period where, uh, for our purposes at least, it, it might make sense to start. Um, I imagine your listeners are probably aware that Vietnam was a French colony uh, beginning in the south in the 18, uh, well, 1859, the 1860s. Uh, North Vietnam, although it wasn't sort of formally thought of in those terms, became part of this French entity uh, a little bit later in the 1880s. Um, but where I want to pick up the story, where I think we, we need to jump in to understand what follows uh, during what we know as the Vietnam War, is really in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, this is when young people in Vietnam start to think of themselves as belonging to a Vietnamese nation. Um, previously, the way that people in Vietnam might have understood their place in the world would have been in a kind of imperial system, alleg uh, pledging allegiance to uh, a Vietnamese emperor, similar perhaps to uh, what listeners might have some idea about in China. Um, but identity tended to be very localized. You know, you might identify strongly with your village or maybe um, a specific region in Vietnam, not necessarily with a kind of distant political entity in the capital. It's really only um, in the early 20th century when this idea of belonging to an entire uh, Vietnamese nation comes into being. And that... Uh, posed a sort of dilemma for the early Vietnamese nationalists, how to explain the fact that Vietnam, the nation, uh, found itself in this subservient position uh, to the French empire. Um, it really called into question a lot of uh, earlier ways of thinking about Vietnam's place in the world, I suppose. And it really demanded new and uh, radical solutions if national independence was ever to come into being. But there was no real consensus uh, among the early nationalists over what form uh, Vietnamese nationalism might take, how politically it should manifest itself. Uh, some people were actually reasonably willing to work within the confines of the French colonial system. Now, that's not to say they had any great love for France, um, but they saw radical politics, uh, revolutionary violence as being kind of naive, uh, a bit foolhardy, uh, unlikely to succeed. They thought that there would be quite a lot to learn, actually, from, uh, from France, from the rest of Europe, uh, from Japan and China. And so initially, for the time being, they were content to sort of carve out space for themselves as best they could uh, within the French system. But there were also radicals, um, Vietnamese nationalists who thought that confronting uh, the French colonial state head on was imperative, um, that this was the only way that anything was ever going to change. And I suppose at a, a kind of basic fundamental level, that in essence is the origins of the Vietnam War then and there, these kind of diverging traditions between um, violent political radicalism on one hand, um, 
the Vietnamese communists are certainly a part of this tradition, although not the only group uh, who would buy that premise. Uh, and then a kind of more cautious, uh, small C conservative response to the French. And that tension really becomes apparent uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s. Okay, interesting. So, so how do we get to the point where the French are expelled from Vietnam then? It really does beg the question, because if you asked most observers of Vietnamese politics in even the late 1930s, they might say that the French colonial state was as strong as it ever had been. Um, that these kind of early bids to take it on by force had largely been suppressed. Um, and there was no clear path forward for the Vietnamese radical nationalists. But it's really the Second World War um, that shakes things up dramatically in Vietnam. Um, so we'll, we'll do a bit of a detour to get there. But in Europe, uh, uh, what we might call, I suppose, um, metropolitan France, Paris, uh, falls to the Nazi forces in 1940. Uh, a, a kind of pro-German Vichy regime is set up in the south of France. The French colonial state authorities, in turn, uh, pledge their allegiance to the Vichy government in France. This brings them into a kind of de facto alliance with Japan, Imperial Japan, uh, through the, the connection with Nazi Germany. Uh, and then in 1940, Japanese forces arrive in Vietnam. Uh, they occupy all of French Indochina, which includes Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, uh, seeing it really, I suppose, as a springboard for uh, further operations to the south, Singapore, uh, Indonesia, and the rest of the region. And they also rely on Vietnam as a source for uh, rice exports to feed their uh, industrial machine and uh, to feed the Japanese military. Mm. Almost immediately within Vietnam, there is resistance to the Japanese presence. And this is where, um, you know, maybe the one Vietnamese uh, person that all your listeners will be familiar with, Ho Chi Minh, uh, really steps to the forefront. Ho Chi Minh hadn't been living in Vietnam until uh, 1941. He was a, a kind of exile on the run from French colonial authorities in uh, Hong Kong and southern China. Uh, but he returns to Vietnam and lends his authority to an umbrella organization of Vietnamese nationalists uh, to lead the resistance against the Japanese occupation. Uh, this is, you might have seen this term, this is known as the Viet Minh. Um, increasingly behind the scenes, uh, led by Vietnamese communists, but at least in theory, it's this sort of pluralistic uh, umbrella group of Vietnamese nationalists. And one of the really interesting features of this time period actually is that the United States uh, a precursor to the CIA, uh, dispatches a small team to Vietnam in order to provide supplies and training to Ho Chi Minh uh, to help them resist the Japanese occupiers. So there actually is some cooperation uh, in the early 1940s between Ho Chi Minh and the Japanese. Yeah, that, that's, that's, a real, that's a real irony. And that, that point stood out to me when I was watching the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam, how there was that, there was that cooperation. So it wasn't always antagonistic between Ho Chi Minh and America. It was very much an alliance of, of convenience at the time, wasn't it? Yes, uh, an alliance of convenience is, I think, exactly right. Mm. Um, I suppose then the next step in our story is the collapse of Imperial Japan in 1945. Um, this leads to a real power vacuum within Vietnam. And another factor worth mentioning, this I think is critical to understanding the rise of Ho Chi Minh and the communists, but it tends to get overlooked. 
uh, is a devastating famine that takes place in Vietnam in 1945. Um, this is partly because the Japanese occupation is extracting so much rice from Vietnam uh, to send back to Japan and northern China. Uh, it's also because American bombing of Japanese positions makes it very difficult to ship rice from place to place within the country. Um, but it's really a devastating event. And, you know, historians always sort of quibble about the numbers. Um, it's probably safe to estimate, though, that approaching a million people uh, die as a result of this famine. So an incredibly uh, destabilized time period in Vietnamese history. Uh, this power vacuum at the top, a real emergency uh, dealing with the famine. This allows Ho Chi Minh and uh, the other Vietnamese nationalists to sweep to power in 1945. They make a very bold claim um, that they are the true representatives of a new uh, independent Vietnamese nation. That said, and I think this is really important to point out, there are other Vietnamese nationalists who already, um, even in 1945, are concerned about the influence of the Vietnamese communists within the nationalist movement, um, who are apprehensive about what government under Ho Chi Minh might mean. Um, Ho Chi Minh's position is much stronger in northern Vietnam than it is in southern Vietnam, although there certainly are uh, uh, loyalists in the south as well. So it's a, a more ambiguous situation than uh, Ho Chi Minh's 1945 declaration might suggest. Uh, in any case, the fate of Vietnam is still to be determined. And it, it's really in um, the, uh, the conference halls of Europe, I suppose, where the initial post-war framework comes into place. At the uh, Potsdam conference in the summer of 1945, uh, it is agreed between the Allied powers that Vietnam will be temporarily divided uh, between North and South until France, until the colonial French can get back and, uh, and stake their claim to it. Uh, Vietnam wasn't the kind of main focus of Potsdam, but it ends up being a, a sort of fateful moment in Vietnamese history all the same. Uh, Ho Chi Minh's claim to independence is not broadly recognized. The European powers see uh, the restoration of the French state as a, a kind of inevitability, I suppose. Um, and that really leads to the war between Ho Chi Minh, uh, the Vietnamese nationalists on one hand, and the, the French colonial state on the other. I see. So so nobody in, in the European powers ever accepted that there was going to be a North Vietnam, Vietnam and a South Vietnam, and that Ho Chi Minh and his party were going to have the North. There, there was never that acceptance. Not, no, certainly not yet. Uh, the Chinese nationalists are given temporary authority over the North. The British actually, um, you know, Britain just pops up everywhere in the imperial world, I suppose, but the British yeah. nominally take control of the South. Actually, um, the British general in command of the South could not wait for the French to arrive. Uh, and the reason for that was that most of the British soldiers serving in Vietnam in this brief British interlude uh, were from South Asia or, uh, or Malaya. And the Viet Minh started propagandizing them. You know, why are you fighting Britain? You should join mm. nationalist movements of your own. Um, mm. To some uh, uh, effect by all accounts, and the British just couldn't wait to leave. So we, we then uh, have, at least on paper, the restoration of French rule. In practice, everything is still a little bit up in the air. Um, it's not immediately clear how France is going to react to Ho Chi Minh and his nationalist movement. Um, increasingly sort of communist driven, as I say, behind the scenes. Um, 
And Ho Chi Minh really is hopeful uh, in 1945 and most of 1946 that he can strike some sort of accommodation uh, with the French colonial state. What he's more or less willing to offer, I'm, I'm simplifying, so do forgive me Vietnam historians, but what he's more or less willing to offer is um, that Vietnam will remain within the French orbit. So broadly subservient to France in terms of foreign policy and defense, um, but with real meaningful autonomy over uh, Vietnamese politics and the economy. And there actually is some receptiveness to this idea in France, uh, in Paris. Uh, French colonial officials recognize that, um, you know, a renewed conflict in Vietnam is the last thing that they need right now. This is at a time when uh, France itself is struggling to keep the lights on and to, uh, and to heat people's houses during the winter. But the difficulty is that the French parliament at this point is completely deadlocked. Um, it's really in no position to negotiate with Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh is not a priority for them. And this allows French military forces um, doing sort of police duties in Vietnam to uh, drive the course of events forward themselves. They really have no interest in Ho Chi Minh's bargain. Um, they right. see Vietnam as a way to redeem French honor and prestige uh, following its humiliating defeat in the Second World War, um, they have absolutely no intention of cooperating or playing second fiddle, heaven forbid, to uh, Vietnamese nationalists. Mm -hmm. And really throughout 1946, um, they, of their own accord, independent of Paris, uh, launch a series of provocations against the Vietnamese nationalists. So roughing people up, arbitrary arrests. Um, it culminates late in 1946 when the northern Vietnamese city of Haiphong, uh, to this day one of the main ports in the north, is bombarded by the French Navy. Um, and it's really at that point where Ho Chi Minh just cannot negotiate with France anymore. He uh, himself is under pressure from hardliners within the Vietnamese communist movement. Um, and that the possibility of a reconciliation is, uh, is just... Uh, all, all but done for uh, at yeah. that moment. So, so just just on that point, Sean, just to pick up on that point about the French military going rogue. So they went rogue and decided we're just not having Vietnamese independence whatsoever. We are going to take matters into our own hands, and by means of force, we are going to retain Vietnam, restore our honor. And then the French government were, wasn't able to bring them to heel at all. Yes, um, by and large, they weren't. Um, I, I'm probably simplifying things a little bit, but the um, the Fourth Republic in France at this point was incredibly divided. Um, it was very difficult for the government to even pass its own uh, domestic agenda. Uh, and there was just nobody in France really with sufficient authority to rein in the French military um, up into the point where it, it just sort of crossed the line. After the Vietnamese part of the city of Haiphong was bombarded by the French Navy, there was really no possibility um, that Ho Chi Minh's position, one of negotiation, uh, would, uh, would survive. He was just under too much pressure, I think, even within his own uh, ranks to consider any sort of accommodation at that point. And that, that's really when the, the kind of renewed war against France is on. French forces from there uh, march on Hanoi, uh, today, the capital of Vietnam, uh, there's a, a really intense period of street fighting for the course of several weeks in early 1947. Uh, eventually, the French forces are just too much, and Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese nationalists retreat to the countryside, and especially to the mountains 
uh, in northern Vietnam near the Chinese border. Uh, that will really be the base of a, a kind of ongoing guerrilla campaign against France uh, for more or less the next uh, nine years. Mm. Yeah, so so th this 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 is not just a small skirmish then between the Vietnamese and the French. This is, this is a proper war. Is that fair yes. to say? Um, it, it's a great question. It becomes more and more of a proper war. Uh, mm. Initially, the Vietnamese forces are no match for the French. Um, their arms are quite uh, rudimentary, I suppose. Mm. Um, they struggle to organize themselves, organize supplies, attain uniforms. So for the first few years of the conflict, after Hanoi Falls, um, it mostly is sort of hit and run uh, attacks, sabotage operations, mm. uh, assassinations, uh, guerrilla style campaigning. Mm. The next big moment, though, um, that we should talk about comes in 1949. And it, it's really a decisive year for many reasons. The first thing that happens is that uh, China, uh, well, as, uh, as the American government would put it, China falls to communism. China is lost to the Chinese communists. Um, Mao Zedong and the Chinese communists march from the north to the south, uh, defeating the Chinese nationalists, and this allows them to secure the border region with Vietnam. So all of a sudden in 1949, there's this link up with the Vietnamese communists across the border um, with their communist counterparts in, uh, in China. I say the Vietnamese communists, this is still nominally on paper a nationalist umbrella, um, but by now many of the non-communist elements have been purged. Um, there's a lot of infighting between the communists and other nationalist movements. And by 1949, it's, it's really looking more and more like this is a, a de facto kind of communist movement on paper. Yeah. So so just just to clarify, Sean, is the need for support for arms what's driving that in the battle against the French? Is, is that what really leads to the nationalists getting into bed with the communists? At least initially, there is um, a good deal of optimism on the part of some of the Vietnamese nationalists that the communists are somebody that they can work with, that um, there's space for everyone in this broad umbrella front, the Viet Minh uh, that Ho Chi Minh puts together. And some of the key positions within this uh, um, ostensible government are staffed by members of nationalist groups who are not formally communists. Um, I think the violence of the struggle against France is one reason why uh, infighting breaks out. Um, but there are always these core ideological differences between them, even going back to the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, in fact, French colonial authorities used to have to house communists and non-communist nationalists in separate wings of the prisons, uh, because if they were ever together, it was a certainty that violence would erupt. So there really is this kind of deep tension and we can maybe see the uh, nominal alliance of convenience within the Vietnamese nationalists as always being a bit short-lived, I suppose. Mm, mm, okay, okay. So, so there's this seminal moment where the Viet Minh, Ho Chi Minh, etc., ally with the communists. The Chinese what, communists. The yeah, Chinese yeah. communists. What happens next? Well, it's really decisive. It, it really just transforms the conflict. Uh, Mao Zedong and the Chinese communists agree to supply the Vietnamese communists. They provide uh, food, uh, weapons, uniforms. Um, no less importantly, they provide military assistance as well. So um, tactical Chinese advisors are deployed to Vietnam to help the Vietnamese communists 
uh, organize the military into a much more formidable force. At the same time, however, uh, things are changing in the United States as well. So initially, I hear I'm talking about 1945, 1946, 47, um, American support for France in Vietnam is pretty lukewarm. Now, they acknowledge that um, French cooperation in Europe is necessary. They're not willing to sacrifice uh, France's claims on Vietnam. Uh, in, uh, uh, you know, they don't want to risk uh, uh, France being upset in Europe for the sake of Vietnam. So Roosevelt in particular sort of begrudgingly goes along with an American or with a French return to Vietnam. Um, but they're not really thrilled about it. There's not much enthusiasm in the United States for supporting the French war against mm. Ho Chi Minh. Yeah, it's, inter it's interesting on that point, Sean, because what I pick up from my reading of FDR is that he's very anti-colonial. He's, he's very much against the colonial powers, and he particularly gives Britain a good run for its money in trying to dismantle the colonial power structure. So, so I can't imagine he was particularly excited about the French yeah. colonial situation in Vietnam either. Absolutely. I think that's broadly fair about Roosevelt. And in fact, Roosevelt, uh, in his writing, singled out the French for being uh, the, the worst example of European colonialism. Mm. Um, he referred to French rule in, in Vietnam as a kind of particular example of bad practice, I suppose. Right. Um, but Roosevelt uh, does not live to see the end of 1949. His successor, Harry Truman, has much less of an initial interest in world affairs. Um, and is instinctively much more sympathetic, I suppose, to, uh, to French interests overseas. That said, American interest in Vietnam is pretty lukewarm until we get to 1949. Why does, uh, why does that change in 1949? Well, um, your listeners might recall, this is getting to the period uh, where the Red Scare becomes a factor in American politics. Um, Senator Joseph, Joseph McCarthy uh, accuses the American State Department uh, of being full of secret communist agents. So domestic political pressure to take a tough line on communism uh, uh, accelerates. 1949, well, as we mentioned, uh, sees the quote-unquote loss of China to the Chinese communists, um, which really prompts the United States to take uh, what's happening in Southeast Asia, Vietnam especially, much more seriously. Um, it's also the year when the Soviet Union successfully tests a nuclear weapon of its own, uh, which really has a dramatic impact on how Americans uh, regard their own security in the world. Mm. And it's really, I suppose, that confluence of factors that yeah. uh, leads the United States to regard Vietnam as suddenly a quite strategic and important place uh, yeah. on the front lines of, of what looks like a quite intense Cold War. Mm. Um, then into the early 1950s, war breaks out in Korea between the United States, uh, the South Korean government, the Korean communists, and the Chinese communists. Um, and it's really in that climate where uh, Vietnam takes on an added significance. Yeah. By the time we get to 1954, uh, the United States is secretly funding about 80% of the French war effort. Um, and in mm. fact, by this point, really kind of pushing the, Fran uh, the French to continue fighting. Uh, behind the scenes. So it's increasingly a kind of American war effort. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, is, is, it is it true then, or is it fair to say, Sean, that the French were getting cold feet about Vietnam by this stage and they were thinking, let's just let's just call time on this and move out. We've had our time in Vietnam and, and we've over well overstayed our welcome, if, if you could ever say that there was a, a good reason for them being there in the first place. 
and it was America who was saying, no, 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 you, you need to you need to be there and you need to stop the spread of communism. Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonably fair position to draw. I'm always at pains not to oversimplify because my, uh, yeah, yeah, my Vietnam course. historians will go after me. But that's broadly, <laughs> I think, a good way of yeah. putting it. The onset of Chinese weapons uh, supplying the Vietnamese communists really changes the calculus. And by 1952, 1953 and 1954, France is very much uh, trying to find a way out. There are anti-war protests in France. Um, dock workers at French ports begin refusing to load and unload supplies destined for Vietnam. Um, and it, it really is the United States uh, kind of compelling the war forward, if you like, behind the scenes. Yeah, very interesting. So, so the US are driving France from behind to, to keep going and they're paying 80% of the French war bill, if you like. What, yeah. what happens in terms of the, the demise of the French? When, when is enough enough for, for France in all of this then? Yeah, it, it's an intriguing question, I suppose. France is looking for an, an out, as you put it, for some time. Um, interestingly, though, the Vietnamese communists are also beginning to think that some sort of negotiated settlement to the war might be in their interest as well. Um, the casualties that they sustain are formidable. Um, it's just very difficult for them to keep the war effort going indefinitely. Um, and so both sides are, are sort of starting to feel each other out for the possibility of a negotiated settlement. Uh, and it's actually agreed by all of the allied powers, um, the United States, China, the Soviet Union, uh, some of the European powers, that there should be a general uh, sort of worldwide summit to discuss Cold War tensions, uh, the war in Korea, uh, but also the war in Vietnam. This is sort of scheduled to take place in advance uh, in the spring of 1954. And once that comes into place, then it really puts the pressure on both the French and the Vietnamese uh, nationalists to get the best terms for themselves that they can at this uh, set of bargaining uh, that's, uh, that's scheduled to take place down the line. France is really hoping that it can do, uh, that it can implement a kind of knockout blow on the Vietnamese uh, nationalists led by Ho Chi Minh, really at this point, the Vietnamese communists. Um, and so they decide to fortify a valley in the remote northwest part of northern Vietnam um, on the road to Laos. They're essentially trying to cut off the road to Laos, um, draw the Vietnamese forces in. So this is why they, they sort of fortify the valley, I suppose. They want it to be enticing enough um, that the Vietnamese nationalists will take the bait. And uh, the Vietnamese forces do decide that they're going to challenge France at this uh, pre-designated location. Uh, the name of the place is Diet Bien Phu, uh, which I, I think is probably well known to some of your readers, really a kind of iconic moment in the history of the yes. early Cold War. Yeah. Dien Bien Phu is how I say it, but you, you say it much more accurately and, um, and, and much better than I do. But uh, but yeah, people, I think people will be quite aware of, of the MBN Fu. So, so yeah, please continue. Yeah, so this, this battle is really designed to shape the course of the negotiations that are set to follow. Um, France is hoping to kind of lure the Vietnamese forces in. Uh, but what they don't realize is that the Viet Minh have been doing preparations of their own. Uh, they have a, a kind of secret weapon, if you like. And that weapon is artillery. Um, artillery hauled laboriously up and down the mountains, uh, through the jungles, through the mud. Um, it's incredibly inhospitable terrain, uh, all the way from the Chinese border in many cases, 
um, drawn often by hand by thousands and thousands of, uh, of porters, just going through unimaginable hardship to get the artillery uh, to the battlefield. There's an entire network of uh, bicycle couriers, people who will load up uh, hundreds of kilos onto rudimentary wooden bicycles and wheel them by hand to the front. Um, it's really testament, I suppose, to the Viet Minh uh, capacity for organization and political mobilization. And on the first day of the battle, you know, as soon as the Viet Minh artillery uh, launches, the French forces know that they've probably bit off more than they can chew. Um, the artillery almost immediately takes out the airfield, which France had been counting on for resupplies. Um, from that point on, all of the supplies have to be uh, dropped in by parachute uh, into this really inaccessible remote part of the country. Uh, and slowly but surely, using incredibly costly human wave attacks, um, the, the, the casualties are quite staggering, um, but slowly and surely the Vietnamese forces draw a ring around the French position uh, and advance until the French are finally forced to surrender, uh, more or less on the eve of the, the conference scheduled to, uh, to sort out the conflict. Mm -hmm. And it's quite ignominious, isn't it, this defeat that the French suffer, because they're laying down a marker and saying, okay, let's, let's fight here. It's almost like in a school playground situation. We say, right, we're going to meet behind the bike sheds for fisticuffs <laughs> after school. And one person's yeah. really confident. They're the ones that are going to dish out the beating. But actually, it's the, the, the ones who, who are supposed to take the beating that come along much better prepared and much stronger and, and actually administer the beating instead. So this is quite ignominious for the French, as well as the fact that they've actually, in a practical sense, been defeated. You're absolutely right. And it's also a tremendous boost to the prestige of Ho Chi Minh uh, and the Viet Minh forces, not only in Vietnam, uh, but all around the world. This is at a time when anti-colonial ideas, anti-colonial movements are really starting to gain momentum. Uh, and the notion of a Vietnamese army confronting and defeating the French Empire head on in battle uh, is something that resonates around the world. That said, though, um, this is one of the many points where the history tends to get oversimplified. Um, but it's worth noting that many of the soldiers fighting on the French side uh, were, in fact, themselves Vietnamese. Um, there's only a relatively small number of uh, what, what I suppose we might call European French involved in the battle. Um, and I mention this because there is within Vietnam uh, still a great deal of apprehension about exactly what a victory for Ho Chi Minh and the communists might mean. Uh, many Vietnamese nationalists, people who uh, ultimately did want to see some sort of independent Vietnamese state come into being, nonetheless still saw France as representing a, a kind of buffer, if you like, uh, against what full control for Ho Chi Minh and the communists might represent. Yeah, so still a very fractured state then, notwithstanding the fact that it seems like people in Vietnam broadly wanted some sort of independence, but there were those reservations about what Ho Chi Minh's version of Vietnam would look like vis-a-vis -vis what the French were offering as well. So. So do so after Dien Bien Phu, do the French leave with their tail, tails between the legs, so to speak? Is, is that it? Is that enough? Well, it's not quite that simple, but I think, you know, within the space of a few years, France is clearly uh, no longer a major player in the scene. Mm. It's at the post-war settlement, uh, the 1954 Geneva Conference, uh, which had been scheduled in advance. 
where we formally see Vietnam divided into North and South. Um, North Vietnam is now uh, to be called the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, but North Vietnam will do for our purposes. Uh, and Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese communist sovereignty uh, is recognized by all over the northern part of the country from the 17th parallel on upwards. South Vietnam uh, nominally still uh, belongs to the French, but by this point, France has created its own Vietnamese sovereign entity, the state of Vietnam. I, I hope this isn't too complicated, but it, it is important because this is really the, yeah. uh, the sort of precursor to the South Vietnamese government that follows. Definitely. Um, Behind the scenes, France is initially hoping to maintain influence, but the Vietnamese nationalists who had gone along with this French colonial project, um, at this point, they've had enough of France. They want to assert their own control uh, over this Southern territory. And the United States uh, is willing to back them in that regard with a real interest in creating a kind of uh, non-communist buffer state in South Vietnam to uh, pre prevent further communist expansion. There are Southern communists though. There are Vietnamese communists who grew up and lived and fought in the South against, French, uh, against the French, um, but their position is much weaker than it is in the North. Um, in the South, they're really one of many different Different groups uh, contending for power. And that, I suppose, uh, is one reason why Ho Chi Minh is willing to go along with the partition of Vietnam, a kind of recognition that if the war goes on much longer, it might properly draw the United States into the battle. At this point, that's not something he's willing to continence. Uh, and a kind of acknowledgement, I suppose, that the, the communist position is weaker in the South um, than it is in the North. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So things kind of get sorted out then with the French. North Vietnam is recognized as its own entity. Where does America come into this? Yeah, this is really the moment, I think, when the United States uh, starts to become a major player in this conflict. Although we're still um, probably 10 years off from seeing hundreds of thousands of American troops pouring in, yeah. uh, like, like we recognize from Vietnam War movies uh, in yes. the United States, I suppose. So the, the first thing I'll say is that um, after a bit of maneuvering behind the scenes, uh, a man named Ngo Ding Ziem, uh, D-I-E-M, comes to power in South Vietnam. Um, initially, he does reasonably well of consolidating, uh, a reasonably good job consolidating power. Um, there are many rivals within even anti-communist Vietnamese contending for, uh, for the throne, if you like. Um, but Ziem at least initially does a reasonably good job of consolidating his position. However, there are still Vietnamese communists lingering in the South. Um, by the time we get to the late 1950s, there's growing resentment of the Ziem government, especially in the countryside. Um, some of Ziem's rural reforms are seen as draconian, uh, arbitrary, unfair, heavy-handed, uh, marred by corruption, the, the kind of capriciousness of local officials. And that really fuels growing rural resentment that the Vietnamese communists are perfectly, cap uh, perfectly equipped to capitalize and to organize to their own purposes. So by the time we get to the, the late 1950s, there's a kind of rural crisis in South Vietnam. Xiem's authority is looking increasingly weak. Um, and this is when the United States, which had always supported Xiem, um, decides that American efforts on his behalf really need to escalate. Um, under the government of John F. Kennedy, for example, the United States 
deploys at first several hundred, and by the time Kennedy is killed in 1963, about 16,000 uh, American advisors, nominally advisors, increasingly, you know, in practice, they are playing more and more of a combat role. Yeah. Um, so the overall number of Americans is still reasonably small, but it's quite a quick escalation uh, in response to this rural crisis. And they also start sending helicopters, um, better weapons, armored personnel car uh, carriers to assist the Ngozian government uh, against this rural communist insurgency. Yeah, yeah. So, so it becomes it becomes a real problem then, doesn't it, in terms of trying to maintain the South and ensure that that, that doesn't fall to, to communism as well. Um, exactly. Exactly. I was going to ask as well about the the ZM government and the, the time period of that dissatisfaction in the rural areas is this the, is this the time when buddhist monks are being oppressed as well and they they start to self-immolate they start to set themselves on fire as we see on well those very famous photos that were, were taken of the the monks self-immolation is, is that around the same time that's exactly what i wanted to mention next i think that mm. the origins of the crisis for the ZM government start in the countryside. But by the time we get to the early 1960s, um, there's real growing urban discontent as well. Um, intellectuals, members of opposition parties, uh, students increasingly speak out against the ZM government. And then as you mentioned, uh, the Vietnamese Buddhists, uh, really important domestic political players, I suppose, just given their strength in numbers, uh, increasingly decide to confront the Ngoding Ziem regime. So on one hand, you have this growing rural uh, communist-led insurgency in the countryside, and then what looks like the breakdown of legitimacy uh, for Ziem in the cities, even in the eyes of his own core constituents. Uh, and it, I, I suppose it's really that sort of cascading set of political crises, uh, tensions between ZM and all of the various different parties in South Vietnam um, that, um, that really prompts the United States to, uh, to start taking South Vietnam much more seriously. Yeah, interesting. And it seems to be that, that fear that they have of the spread of communism, that, that idea that it's going to be a domino effect, that if, if Vietnam falls entirely to communism, then they're going to lose all of Southeast Asia to it and it's going to become a massive problem and this ties in with the idea about communism spread, the global spread and it's going to become a bigger and bigger problem and so they, they need to nip it in the body. Is that fair enough or, or am I oversimplifying? So it's a really important question that scholars on Vietnam have gone back and forth about ever since. How much did the, the idea of the domino theory really matter? Um, certainly, American officials tried to justify intervention in Vietnam to the American and the global public in those terms. Uh, if South Vietnam goes, then maybe Thailand or even Singapore will be next. I think we now know, though, from looking at um, declassified documents, taped conversations between uh, American presidents and secretaries of state, that the domino theory was probably less of an immediate concern uh, than they led on publicly. Um, one uh, school of interpretation, I suppose, that's gained a lot of currency lately and, and something that I find persuasive is that it's really domestic politics um, that is driving American presidents to intervene. Um, this is especially true when we get to the really big, uh, significant American intervention in 1965. Um, this is when the, the kind of Vietnam War as we know it from American movies really starts to take hold. Um, at this point, we're talking about President Lyndon Johnson following Kennedy's assassination in 1963. 
Um, but uh, historians like, oh, I'm trying not to name drop too much here, but I, I think Frederick Lovall's work is really good on this point, that Johnson had real anxiety, uh, personal anxiety about seeming weak to American voters on communism, yeah. um, desperate to maintain this kind of tough, uh, decisive persona, even though privately there was a good deal of skepticism uh, about what American mm -hmm. intervention might actually be able to accomplish. Yeah, interesting. Interesting that you make that point about domestic politics and how this American intervention is very much about a theatre that's happening on American soil rather than a genuine, or maybe there is some genuine concern there, of course, but but this idea of projecting American power and American superiority even. That's really interesting. And it, it, may, it leads on to a, a question I've got in relation to a comment that that Robert McNamara made in 1962 when he first visited Saigon in, in 1962, where he said, every quantitative measurement we have shows we're winning this war. Now, McNamara, he was the Secretary of State, is that correct? Uh, defense. Of Defense, beg your pardon. Yeah. So he was the Secretary of Defense, and he, he reckoned that by every quantitative measurement, America was winning the war. Was he right? And if not, or if America wasn't winning the war at that point, which metrics was he missing? Um, two, two questions there. I'll tackle them in turn. I think the short answer to the first one, in my view, at least, is no. Um, I don't think that the United States was winning the war in 1962. That said, it's a more complicated, uh, sorry, here I go again, but a, a more complicated um, time period maybe than my, uh, than my one word answer would let on. Um, I think it's kind of telling that McNamara feels the need to justify the idea that the United States is winning the war. It's almost a kind of defensive yeah. stance. And yeah. looking behind the scenes, um, we now know that this was a real point of debate within, in 1962, the John F. Kennedy administration. Um, in fact, Kennedy would go on to send a two-person team uh, to assess the situation in Vietnam in uh, early in 1963 and report back. Um, one member of the team was a member of the U.S. Marines and gave a very optimistic report um, backing up what McNamara claimed. The other, a member, a member of the State Department or the, the kind of a more American equivalent of the foreign ministry, um, very much negative, uh, very pessimistic about American prospects. And this prompted mm. Kennedy to exclaim, did you boys even visit the same country? Mm. Um, I think 1962 is a moment when communist momentum uh, begins to fade a little bit. At least initially, it seems as though the introduction of more American advisors um, better weapons for the South Vietnamese uh, military might be having a bit of an impact. But there are many what we might call good years uh, throughout the war from the perspective of, uh, of an anti-communist, if you like. Um, yeah. You know, early in the 1940s, France does quite well in the South against Vietnamese communists. Uh, 1951 is a good year for the French. Um, ZM does quite well initially mm. in the, the mid-50s. Um, even much later in the war, after the communist Tet Offensive in 1968, um, there is a, a kind of period where the communists are on the back foot and the South Vietnamese state uh, is ascendant. And I, I mentioned that, I guess, just to try to avoid, um, I find a, a tendency in the scholarship to talk about the Vietnam War as having a preordained outcome from the outset. 
Right. Um, I think it might, makes much more sense to think about it in terms of uh, uh, ebb and flow. Yeah. But I do think that it's um, overstating the case considerably to say uh, that the United States was winning the war in Vietnam in 1962. Mm. Already, uh, we start to see the seeds of what would become Loading Ziem's demise. Um, by the time we get to 1963, the communists have uh, reacted to the change in American and South Vietnamese tactics. Um, reports start coming in of renewed communist momentum. Um, the Buddhist crisis really accelerates uh, that we talked about it just a minute ago in 1963. Um, so I, I think that sort of uh, proclamation on McNamara's point is uh, is really premature. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really interesting how you note that there is an inherent defensiveness in even saying such a thing as that, because you don't say something like that without a context. One thing that struck me about it was the, the nature of quantitative measurements. Yeah, and I just yeah. thought... That's it's very telling so, as well. So telling, isn't it? So this is, I'd like to get on to talking about the Vietnamese people now, because this kind of leads us onto the, the idea of hearts and minds. How do people react to the Americans being there? Given that there is this desire, there is this yearning within the nation for nationhood, for national sovereignty, perhaps quite a lot of, I would imagine there'd be quite a lot of hostility to foreigners who are coming in trying to impose a will. So tell us about the difference between those who, who support the Americans or, or those who, who are against the communists and those who favor the communists. And how does that evolve over time in the, the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people? A great question. And um, you know, the, the answer I, I hope is interesting to your readers. I certainly found it interesting to explore uh, going back and looking through some of those dusty old uh, South Vietnamese newspapers. Um, as you might imagine, those who are sympathetic to the Vietnamese communists are extremely hostile to the idea of the United States intervening uh, quite so directly in what they see as Vietnamese affairs. Uh, and the Vietnamese communists are really able to use the growing American presence um, to rally support to their own cause, to portray themselves as the one true representatives of the Vietnamese nation. Um, and they're always at pains to link uh, the South Vietnamese government and the United States to portray uh, South Vietnamese officials as no more than American puppets. Um, that, that, I think, is probably not too surprising. What I found really interesting, though, um, looking back at South Vietnamese public opinion during the period of American escalation is just how much ambivalence there was from the very beginning uh, on the part of vehemently anti-communist uh, Vietnamese to the American presence. Um, and we know now, looking at some of the declassified documents, just how much tension there was as well uh, between South Vietnamese governments and the United States. Um, mm. The idea of South Vietnam as this kind of American uh, puppet creation with the United States calling the shots, I, I just don't think can really be uh, sustained anymore in light of the, the new evidence that's uh, come from Vietnamese archives, uh, as well as other places. Um, mm. Ding Ziem, who we've talked about, was sort of constantly clashing with American officials. He really resisted the efforts by the United States to take control of the entire war effort. Um, but beyond just that, even within the broader South Vietnamese society, um, there's real resentment, again, on the part of anti-communist Vietnamese uh, about the American presence. And 
it's maybe worth noting here just how transformative and frankly, in many ways, destructive the impact uh, of American intervention was on South Vietnamese society. Um, the, the kind of massive intervention that we see beginning in 1965, uh, hundreds of thousands of American soldiers, more than half a million by the time we get to 1969, um, results in a torrent of money flowing into South Vietnam. Uh, this facilitates chronic uh, spiraling corruption. Um, the, the kind of uh, effects of the American war in the countryside uh, generate millions of internal refugees. So people forced to flee uh, the violence in the countryside to cities, provincial towns, where they often are forced to um, take up residence in really hastily assembled shacks and shanty towns on the outskirts of town. Um, people in, in Saigon complain about just how sort of squalid and uh, dirty and unpleasant the city has become. Uh, and there's a, a real nostalgia even for the days of Moding Ziem or even the French period uh, relative to the American phase of the war, if you like. Um, drug mm -hmm. abuse takes off, prostitution takes off. Um, and we start to see uh, Vietnamese Catholics, some of the most vehemently anti-communist people in the South, uh, recoiling about uh, recoiling against what they see as this kind of uh, American onslaught against uh, uh, traditional South Vietnam. By the time we get to the late 1960s, the 1970s, I'll, I'll maybe just add this, um, American forces are increasingly being assigned away from Vietnamese population centers because they just cause so much tension. And in fact, they're increasingly subject to attacks uh, by everyday people in South Vietnam. Uh, people throwing makeshift Molotov cocktails at American jeeps or uh, confronting Americans in the street, occupying uh, American airfields. These are not Vietnamese communists, um, or at least most of the people involved in this sort of activity are not uh, communist partisans, but they're just at their wits end uh, with the American presence. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating, isn't it? How we talk about the origins of, of the war and how it wasn't just about the domino theory. It was about this theater of American domestic politics. And if that really is, or if that really is at the, the, the heart or the foundation of the Vietnam War, and it led to such disruption in Vietnam itself. It's almost like America sneezes and, and Vietnam gets pneumonia. It's the, there was that saying, wasn't there? And I can't remember exactly the date on this, but th there was a saying that Saigon was filthy and free. And, and, and I think from what you were saying, how you break it down, the, the problems that were faced in the South, given the American presence, really do bear that out that you know prostitution drug abuse and a lot of people like you say that that displacement we, we can't imagine that we, we look now at what's happening in ukraine and it's absolutely appalling where we think people have been been bombed and have to move out of their homes i certainly don't want to draw any comparisons between vietnam and, and ukraine but it's that same idea of displacement isn't it it's the fact that the, the net effect of of the war is that people are losing their homes and they're being displaced and it's very interesting how how that that has happened from what essentially has been a, a domestic American issue, and also the fear of and, and that element of fear of the the domino effect of communism in Southeast Asia as well. So this is this is really quite quite interesting how there is it's not even you couldn't necessarily call it the butterfly effect. Essentially, it, it's probably more than that, but but it really gives pause for thought in terms of how 
great powers go about conducting their business in, in the world and, and the effects of that. Yes, and I, I think by the time we get to the end of the war, we see even uh, some of the more astute American officials uh, beginning to recognize just how counterproductive their presence was. Mm. Um, it becomes very difficult to uh, assemble anti-communist political coalitions that are seen as legitimate in the eyes of uh, everyday people in, the Vietnam, uh, in Vietnam just because um, the governments that the United States supported became so closely associated um, with, uh, with the United States and all the excesses that it, uh, that it brought to Vietnamese society, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Conversely, though, I've always been fascinated, I guess, by just how frustrated American officials felt, how much they felt their hands were tied uh, operating in Vietnam, notwithstanding the just massive scale of uh, American intervention in the country. Uh, again, 550,000 soldiers in 1969 is uh, um, just completely on a different scale to um, uh, most of what we've seen through the Cold War period. But American officials are constantly struggling to really even get to the bottom of what's happening in anti-communist politics in Saigon. Um, struggling to figure out who the alliances are, why somebody might be plotting against somebody else, um, what it means if a given person is removed from their post at the head of the customs uh, inspectorate. Um, you know, it, it's a very kind of murky, uh, uh, clandestine world. And mm. the United States, at least reading the documents um, that they left for us, never really has the sense that they're in any control of what's happening in Saigon. I, yeah. I found that just uh, revelatory, I guess, especially yeah. given the tendency to see South Vietnam as this kind of American puppet regime. Yeah, that, that I think is such a fascinating point. It relates to so many other things. If, if we think even in recent history, if, if we think even the exit from Afghanistan, where America was saying, we, we're going to exit Afghanistan and it's not going to be, we, we're not going to be leaving on, you know, the, on, on helicopters on rooftops. And, and that's pretty much what happened because of that lack of understanding, because of that lack of appreciation of the difference alliances the different networks that were at play within the culture and the history of of that country itself it's really fascinating how the the battle and and again correct me if i'm oversimplifying this but it seems to me as as an outsider so to speak that the battle was won and lost on the basis of hearts and minds and the failure to to really win hearts and minds but but not just winning hearts and minds understanding hearts and minds understanding what the values were of the Vietnamese people on the on the north and the south and and like you say it's this idea that the south was just doing whatever America told it to do is not true it was not the case was it so 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 very interesting I want to just pull something up here Sean something that McNamara said later on he was very confident at the the start of the war that America was winning it but he was less confident over time. I just want to read this quote from his, his reflections on this, which reads, I deeply regret, regret that I did not force a probing debate about whether it would ever be possible to forge a willing military effort on a foundation of political quicksand. It became clear then, and I believe it is clear today, that military force, especially when wielded by an outside power, cannot bring order in a country that cannot govern itself. So he seems there to be expressing this internal chaos, if you want to call it, division, 
within Vietnam and then America kind of comes in and decides you're not going to be communist. You're going to be open market, free market, capitalist society. You're not going to be communist. And actually, what chance did that ever have of succeeding? So going back to what you were saying before, you don't like to talk about this as a predetermined thing. But was the Vietnam War destined to fail, if we look at it like that? Well, there's um, there's so much to, to touch on here, I suppose. I think that I, I broadly agree with what you're saying about hearts and minds, but I would counter that I don't think uh, Vietnamese hearts and minds were ever the United States to win or lose. Mm. I absolutely mm. agree that the question of political legitimacy uh, in South Vietnam is fundamental to uh, how the conflict began and, and how it ended. Um, but in a, in a kind of uh, maybe paradoxical way, just given how much the United States contributed to the war effort, um, I see the American presence in terms of South Vietnamese politics as always being, uh, always being limited. I think that the real um, decisive hinge on which the Vietnam War uh, was determined was the persistent inability of successive governments in South Vietnam uh, to establish a broad base of legitimacy. And to really get to the bottom of the story of the Vietnam War, I think we need to look much more carefully at them, at figures like Ngo Dinh Diem, uh, later his successor, uh, Nguyen Van Thieu. Um, these are names that are often obscure to casual readers of the Vietnam War. And to be honest, even uh, real specialists in Vietnamese history still don't necessarily know very much about a figure like Thieu. Um, but to me, it's, it's this sort of fundamental breakdown in political legitimacy in the South, even in the eyes of anti-communists. Um, when the South Vietnamese government loses the ability to uh, rally and motivate and represent anti-communist South Vietnamese, um, that I think is, uh, is when the political collapse from within that precedes the military defeat in, in 1975 uh, passes its point of no return. But that said, I don't think that moment was uh, was preordained in the 1960s. I think it's only relatively late in the conflict um, when the South Vietnamese government itself and through decisions that it makes uh, passes that tipping point. Yeah, I, I, I love how you bring it back to the South Vietnamese because we are so focused and my questions have been focused on America and America's role and, and thinking, well, it was a bad idea to start with, so they shouldn't have gone in. And if they, if they did want to win and they went in, could they have, have won by winning the hearts and minds? But like you quite rightly point out, Sean, there's a need to focus much more heavily on the South and that politic, that legitimacy, but almost what you, would, you could call moral authority in all of this as well, because they seem to have, from, from my reading and, and my fairly limited research on this, it seems like they didn't have a lot of moral authority whatsoever. And so it was very easy for the North to pick off people. And, and what, what was it like in terms of the North having people turn to their side? How did you have any, any stats or anything, a rule of thumb idea of, of defections from the, the South to the North because of, because of this or over the course of the war? Yeah, it, it's a, <laughs> it, it's a great question. And, 
I, I am almost hesitant to answer because then we we sort of risk falling into McNamara's trap of uh, <laughs> of looking for qualitative evidence. The, sure, the truth sure. is there were defections on both sides really throughout yeah. the war. Um, uh, I think, if anything, probably more defections from formal members of the communist military forces to the other side rather than vice versa. Um, but on the other hand, the Vietnamese communists were always able to recruit people um, from the South. Um, mm. There are good years and there are bad years, as, as we said, but they always have a kind of core political structure in the South uh, and an ability to mobilize and recruit people in the South. So to go into a bit more detail about defections from the communist side to the uh, South Vietnamese or American side, um, I suppose first we have to consider just what an ordeal it was to even get to South Vietnam from North Vietnam in the first place. Um, for most of the war, people walked. This is a journey of, uh, you know, well over a thousand kilometers through incredibly inhospitable terrain, mountains, jungles, uh, mud. Um, people were subject to diseases along the way. Food supplies were very limited. Um, the American bombing presence, uh, not just in Vietnam, but in Laos and Cambodia, where a lot of the infiltration corridors lay, uh, was constant. Um, and it, it's just an incredible ordeal to go through. And I think that, as much as anything, um, prompted some of the defections. People just felt like they were at their wit's end and they, uh, they needed an escape. Um, it's probably also worth noting that a lot of the defections were more tactical. Um, people might switch sides in order to momentarily gain a bit of advantage, but without um, necessarily changing their core allegiances, I suppose. Um, it, the, the divisions between Vietnamese communists and uh, anti-communists or non-communists, if you like, were at times a bit more fluid than uh, a sort of binary presentation might suggest. I mean, mm. in the South in particular, um, it's not uncommon for families to be divided down the middle. There were many relatively prominent officials on the South Vietnamese government side who had uh, brothers or cousins uh, reasonably high ranking on the communist side and of course vice versa. Yeah. Um, and some families in the South might even try to hedge their bets by having one side join the communist movement and the other side uh, joining the South Vietnamese state. So allegiances yeah. um, at various points in the war can be a bit fluid. Yeah. Maybe a, another thing that I should uh, address, though, is this idea of moral legitimacy uh, on the part of the South Vietnamese government. And here... I think it's just critical to distinguish between the South Vietnamese state itself and the kind of broader idea of a non-communist South Vietnamese political entity. And that's really why I've been paying at pains, I suppose, to uh, note just how many Vietnamese uh, soldiers were fighting on behalf of France at Viet Minh Phu, for example. Um, to note the kind of deep historical skepticism about Vietnamese communism uh, going all the way back to the 1930s, if not the 1920s. Um, there really are Vietnamese anti-communists. There really are people who want a different so, a sort of government for Vietnam. Uh, they're, they're not sort of figments of the uh, American creation, if you like. Um, so there is a kind of core constituency for at least the concept of a non-communist state. Um, but the difficulty is creating a government that aligns with the values of these constituents, um, that lets these constituents feel that it represents them, that it's responsive to their interests. Um, what many of them want is a government in Saigon that is 
reasonably transparent, um, to some extent bound by the rule of law. They're not holding out for you know, Sweden. They don't want this necessarily to be a model democracy. They re recognize that in a time of war, that's probably unrealistic. Um, but what they really want is a government that represents them, um, that uh, enjoys their legitimacy. It's conceivable that this might happen at various points throughout the war. Uh, when Modingzium first takes over in the mid-1950s, um, he really confounds a lot of skeptics and at least initially seems to be doing reasonably well, uh, only for that to give way along the lines that we've discussed. And then again, um, in the late 1960s, there is a concerted effort to reform the South Vietnamese government. Uh, elections are held in 1967, a new constitution is drawn up, uh, a new set of political institutions come into being, uh, sort of sh showcased by a new national assembly. Um, Vietnamese anti-communists are skeptical, but they're willing to give this a chance. Um, it seems like something that might at some point develop into the sort of government that they can get behind. But um, what happens is the South Vietnamese military, uh, especially led by the president, Nguyen Van Thieu, uh, essentially commandeers the process. And it becomes an increasingly authoritarian, uh, unresponsive, and illegitimate government. And so I think it's that process, um, the loss of legitimacy in the eyes of people who really very much wanted a non-communist state to come into being, um, that is the, the kind of fateful flaw in uh, in South Vietnam's demise. Mm -hmm. And that, that in itself is quite tragic, really, that those people really wanted something better than, than communism. They wanted something different, and they, they just didn't believe it was possible, and they yeah, didn't I, see it. I've encountered people in the course of my research who were imprisoned by the French colonial regime, then again imprisoned by the South Vietnamese military government, and then again, after the fall of South Vietnam in 1975, imprisoned by the Vietnamese communists. Um, mm. That, I think, really is tragic and, mm. um, uh, and a, a kind of overlooked part of the story of uh, Vietnamese political history in the war as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the, the, the people that tend to get lost in the fog of war and the differences between the people. And this conversation has been so enlightening, Sean, in terms of bringing out those complexities and appreciating the complexity of human values and that's very much the, the focus of this podcast is is values and at a macro level but also at a micro level as well and it seems very much that there were competing values or multiple values that were driving america into the war in the first place then there were different values different visions and aspirations within vietnam and vietnam itself was sounds to be at least like you say there was a power vacuum and it was at least at a point of needing to sort itself out. And so when American, this is, this is why I'm, I'm still inclined. I know you, you, you like to have the complexity in there, but I'm, I'm still inclined to think as an outsider that it was destined to fail at least, at least when, when it occurred, the Vietnam War, from, from the American point of view and from the American involvement, just because that country had so much going on, it needed to get its own house in order to some extent before... You would have you would have a foreign power for example if the, if there was this group of of insurgents that were trying to ruin it for everybody else and but there was a, a majority of people or a significant number of people that were saying actually come and help us because the communists are trying to take over that that might have been different but in terms of how things were it very much seems to me like the americans were were in a very very difficult 
position, a very compromised position in terms of trying to affect the outcome that they wanted to do. One of the things that I was going to talk about as well, Sean, in kind of just touching, so, so before we move on, I'd like to touch on the the metrics, going back to McNamara's point yeah. about the metrics. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's really disturbed me as I've, I've looked into this is that the kill ratio was a big metric for the American military, wasn't it, in terms of how many how many Viet Cong do we kill to the loss of, of an American soldier? Uh, something to that effect, because they couldn't really quantify whether they were winning the war. And they needed a good story to tell back home along the lines of, oh, by the way, we are winning the war when protests were kicking off in America. They needed to, to, to tell that story that they were winning war. But they were looking at things like kill ratios, which is an awful way of, of looking at it. More awful still, the fact that a lot of the people that were dying on the Vietnamese side were nothing to do with the Viet Cong. They were nothing to do with the conflict. They were, they were innocent people. Have you got anything to, to add to that? Well, you're, you're absolutely right that the toll on civilians is staggering. Um, and, and that's maybe a point that we should address in more detail on its own, I suppose. Um, the question of metrics, uh, again, I, I think you're absolutely right to bring this to, um, uh, br bring this to our attention here. Um, kill ratios were one metric that were used at various points by um, various uh, branches, I guess we might say, within the United States effort. The military in particular um, made a point of recording them. But what I think is interesting is how much dispute there was behind the scenes, uh, really throughout the war, over what metrics were appropriate. Um, what we should be measuring, how can we ensure that our metrics are reliable? Um, on the part of the State Department, for example, the CIA, I think there was a good deal of skepticism about something quite so crude uh, as kill metrics, I suppose. But then the question is, what else do you look at? Um, this was at a time when the social sciences were really uh, coming of age in the United States at American universities. The idea of being able to um, quantify things that had previously been effectively unquantifiable uh, due to the lack of computing power. And so the Vietnam War, I suppose, was a sort of test case. Um, it's not a coincidence that before he became Secretary of Defense, McNamara uh, worked in the automotive industry, where by all accounts, he was a brilliant executive at sort of uh, rationalizing the process of industrialization. Um, but it wasn't long before even McNamara himself realized that this was just not a method that could be easily grafted onto something as complex as a war. Um, mm. And I suppose to his credit, he, he realized early on, um, you know, not long after uh, North Vietnamese and American intervention in 1965, that the United States was probably not going to be able to decisively win the war. Um, essentially, he looked at the number of uh, communist infiltrators from north to south, um, the amount that were, as he might have put it, attrited, lost to illness or death or mm -hmm. uh, desertion. Uh, and his own models suggested that the United States had, you know, relatively early on, uh, bit off more than it could chew, perhaps. That doesn't yeah. necessarily mean he thought it would end in uh, the decisive collapse of the South Vietnamese state, which mm. even as late as 1974 uh, took a lot of people by surprise. Um, but it's a, a kind of interesting moment, I guess, uh, where somebody like Mac McNamara, who was so details oriented, was forced to grapple with the limitations of, mm. uh, of his own methodology. 
yeah. later on in the war. I'll, I'll just mention this because it, it's kind of fascinating to read these as a historian uh, looking back in hindsight. But the United States did everything it possibly could to measure hearts and minds, as you put mm. it. Um, they really wanted to know whose hearts and minds were being won and where and why. Uh, and by the time we get to the late 1960s and, and early 70s, they implemented what were called pacification attitude analysis system, PAS uh, scores. Yeah. And they would literally send teams out into the countryside to round up Vietnamese farmers and say, are you more or less confident about the government in Saigon's ability to handle the economy than you were a month ago? Um, <laughs> right. Would you say that you are slightly more sympathetic to the communist side, more sympathetic, significantly, mm. you know, we've all done mm. surveys like this uh, in, <laughs> yeah, in yeah, our own yeah. experience, I guess. And you can go back and read their attempts to quantify these and measure trends over time. Um, but the people involved in this project knew that the data they were collecting was really limited. And mm. um, I think by the end of the war, they, they sort of knew better than to put too much stock in this sort of thing. I mean, they, yeah. they would often admit that the methodology was flawed to the point at times of being ludicrous. I mean, mm. interviewing prisoners following very violent if interrogations, if not torture. I mean, what kind of answers can you sincere answers can you really expect to get from that sending people yeah. um accompanied by teams of gunmen because the security situation was so poor in some places uh into the countryside well is anybody really going to answer forthrightly to somebody pointing a gun at them and, <laughs> exactly. and they knew that the answer was uh, uh was bound to be no yeah yeah talk talk about muddying the data yeah it's yeah. It's, it's not exactly the the optimal circumstance in which to to try and get a, a good solid yeah. reliable answer out of someone it's really exactly. interesting I'm, I'm really glad actually that you mentioned mcnamara's background before he he took on his role as secretary of defense because there is there is and i still think this lingers now this 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 almost obsession with data and the quantitative stuff and looking at things across the board and and, and it, it really it really seems to wipe out the individual experience so we talk about hearts and minds, and it seems quite antithetical to the hearts and minds of the individual if, if we're trying to put everybody in little boxes, because people's feelings change all the time and people's sentiments change all the time. Something like you say about somebody being asked in the countryside at gunpoint, well, do you think this or do you think that or to what extent do you think this or to what extent do you think that? Well, they might give a genuine answer on one day. But then if their village gets bombed, whether by design or accident, and they survive and family members die, how do they think about it then? So these things, these things change all the time. So just to, just to kind of come towards the end of this now, Sean, how does the South Vietnamese government fall? You mentioned it's a surprise. What, what is the killer blow for it? Um, here, I, I'm really drawing on my own research, and I don't want to overstate the impact that I've had because there are so many good people working on Vietnam, but I, um, I just don't think that the political dynamics within the South towards the end of the war are very well understood. 
Um, there's really just a, a sort of small, and when I say well understood, I mean within English scholarship. Uh, I'm not claiming to know anything that anyone who lived through that time period uh, doesn't know. Um, but it, it's just not a part of how um, English language scholarship and popular culture uh, around the war has remembered uh, the final stages. Um, I talked earlier about this window of opportunity, perhaps, where we see political reforms implemented in 1967. Um, then in 1968, the Vietnamese communists launched the Tet Offensive, uh, this sort of sweeping nationwide attack against American and South Vietnamese positions all over the country. Um, it has a real impact on American political opinion, but in military terms, it is not successful. This really is an important point to bring up. It, it is not successful. And the Vietnamese communists um, for some time find it difficult to mobilize and recruit people in the South uh, as a result of that. So you can maybe see that things might potentially at some point be on the road to turning. I don't want to overstate this, um, but there is a moment where the communists are clearly on the back foot. But the South Vietnamese military government, and it was a de facto military government, not notwithstanding um, the constitution and the new institutions that come into feeling, um, becomes increasingly heavy handed uh, as the war goes on. Um, it begins to move against the National Assembly. Uh, it begins to suppress journalists and opposition parties. Um, power becomes increasingly concentrated in the hands of the president, uh, a general, Nguyen Van Thieu. And I think this is um, not something that you'll see in every history book, but I really think that a point of no return is the second presidential election in 1971. Thieu uh, is very clearly planning to rig the vote in his advantage. The contest in 1967 had been much closer than the military would have liked. Um, and he's really taking no chances in 1971. But his written instructions to uh, loyalists in the countryside on how to rig the election uh, inevitably leak. And I've actually seen them in the Vietnamese archives. Um, when this happens, the other two opposition candidates drop out in protest. Chu uh, decides to proceed unopposed, reframing the election as a referendum on his uh, right and legitimacy to govern. The United States is absolutely horrified. They see this as a PR disaster, um, but there's not really anything that they can do at this point. It's another example of just how limited they are to inf uh, influence South Vietnamese politics. And I think that's the moment where people in South Vietnam, anti-communists, look at the spiraling corruption um, the real hit to the South Vietnamese economy as a result of the oil shocks in 1973, the OPEC oil shocks, um, the growing aloofness of the Nguyen Van Thieu government, the fact that it no longer seems to even want to pretend to represent them. And they conclude that this is no longer a government that they want to sacrifice for, um, no longer a government that they want to endure any hardships to protect. That's not to say um, that they want the Vietnamese communists to take over or that they see communist victory as inevitably preordained. But it leads to a real um, deterioration of morale within the South Vietnamese military. And what that means is that when the communists launch a what turns out to be final offensive in the spring of 1975, even they are blown away by just how quickly the South Vietnamese military and really the South Vietnamese state uh, disintegrates. They think it's going to be a hard fight. 
Um, mm. They think it might not be until the end of 1976 before uh, their victory is assured. Um, the military just disintegrates in the face of what initially were communist skirmishes. And what the communist planners in Hanoi thought would take two years is more or less um, all said and done in the course of about two months. So mm. I, I just don't think you can understand that military collapse without looking at the um, political hollowing out, if you like, that preceded it. Yeah, that's such an important point, isn't it? And again, it comes back to this idea of hearts and minds and what's really going on. And people, if people are going to put their lives on the line, they really have to believe in something, don't they? They really have to believe yeah. that, that they are on the side of right. And may, maybe they are right, maybe they're not right. But ultimately, they have to believe that there is some superordinate purpose for which they're doing it that is is morally defensible. And corruption is one way to absolutely wipe that out. If if people feel like they're on a side that is corrupt and that is self-serving, then you are just not going to get people to, to sacrifice and risk their lives to support that sort of regime. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And framing things around values, as you've done, is really insightful. Um, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but we, we really do tend to overlook the Vietnamese uh, history leading up to the conflict, this sort of clash of values as early as the 1920s and the 1930s. What is the appropriate political form that Vietnamese nationalism should take? Um, these were really heated debates long before anybody in the United States was thinking about Vietnam. And yeah. um, to get a sense of how and why the conflict ends the way it does, I think we, we really do have to trace them through all the way back to that time period. And then um, to the wartime period, the, the ability, frankly, of the Vietnamese communists to rally people um, at times very violently and coercively. We, we shouldn't neglect that, but to mm. motivate people to support one set of values uh, and the failure of the South Vietnamese state to convince people who believed in the values that it espoused that it was their true representative. That, I think, is yeah. the real um, essence of the conflict. There were very yeah. few Americans left in Vietnam by the end of the war. Um, mm. At the end of 1972, there are maybe 40,000 Americans, mostly just sort of support personnel working in logistics. Um, the final two years really were the South Vietnamese state um, forced to contend against the Vietnamese communists on its own. Mm, very interesting. Very interesting. It sounds like the the internal contradiction in the South Vietnamese government really, really undermined it and really, really caused its own demise. So it's, it's very interesting. So Sean, just in in wrapping up, I can't I can't wrap up without asking a little bit about what the what the legacy of the Vietnam War is from the Vietnamese perspective. You you've spoken to people in Vietnam who have directly been involved in the conflict, whose lives have been affected by the conflict. What, from their point of view, is the legacy of the Vietnam War? And how's that affected life in Vietnam as things have been since the war? People ask me this all the time. And I think in part, the curiosity about this comes from the fact that so many uh, Westerners are traveling to Vietnam now. It's very much open for business in terms of tourism. And visitors to Vietnam often note uh, just how little visible signs of the war there seem to be. Um, a lot of people are surprised by this, but unless you're uh, sort of looking for it in museums, um, you wouldn't necessarily at surface level, I think, uh, have a sense of this incredibly destructive conflict that had happened during living memory. It is quite a young country. Many people uh, alive in Vietnam uh, now were born after the war. 
Um, there's no real surface hostility to Americans. Um, but that, I think, is overlooking just how transformed Vietnamese society was by this conflict. We, ha we have to go a little bit beneath the surface, I guess, um, to really tease out your question. One um, enduring legacy of the violence that was unleashed by all sides as a result of the conflict, American, uh, Vietnamese communists, South Vietnamese, uh, is the... Um, the, the kind of lingering presence of an authoritarian government uh, in Vietnam today, a state very much born of war, to borrow a phrase from another historian. And I think we see a kind of recurring tendency on the North and the South for authoritarian politics to prevail. Vietnam is, and I'm borrowing a phrase from a, a well-known historian here, a state born of war. Um, that's certainly true, I think, about the modern Vietnamese government, but we see really throughout the conflict just the sheer uh, exertion of waging this incredibly destructive conflict year on, year on end um, tended to bring authoritarian governments to the fore, uh, both in the north uh, on the communist side and in the south. Um, and I, I think that many of the political structures that remain in place, uh, a one-party state, a very well-organized, far-reaching government all the way down to the village level, um, at least on paper, no formal political opposition, recurring crackdowns against bloggers and journalists. Um, you can really, I think, trace the legacy of this government to the wartime period um, when the exigencies, if you like, of fighting the conflict uh, meant that taking the authoritarian option uh, often seemed like the easier choice to uh, Vietnamese governments, again, north and south. What I'd also say, though, is that there's really no one Vietnamese legacy. Um, it's just such a complex, uh, multifaceted conflict that the war continues and, and will always mean, I think, very different things to uh, different people. Yeah. Um, there is a large and vibrant overseas Vietnamese community uh, in the United States, but also in Canada, France, Australia, uh, many other parts of the world. And there, you get a very different uh, perspective, I suppose, on what the Vietnam War was all about, what it meant, mm. uh, why it was fought, um, what, what the legacy was. Much yeah. more willingness, obviously, to take the South Vietnamese government seriously, um, much more uh, condemnation of the Vietnamese communists, a very different picture than the uh, often sort of romantic uh, portrayal, I suppose, that we see of uh, the Vietnam War and the Vietnamese communists in documents produced by the American anti-war movement. Yeah. I guess another enduring legacy beneath the surface, beneath the, the kind of veneer of a country that's moved on is real private bitterness and pain, uh, especially by people who are old enough to have lived through the conflict. Mm. There's really been no formal attempt at reconciliation between the warring Vietnamese parties. Um, wow. In many cases, there's not much hostility towards the United States in Vietnam. And in fact, the Vietnamese Communist Party and uh, the United States are working increasingly closely together on security arrangements in the region. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really the Vietnamese anti-communists who are not part of uh, official narratives. Um, their, right. their history, their ideas, um, what they thought the war was all about is... Um, there's just no space for it, I suppose, in contemporary Vietnam. And that mm. kind of reconciliation and, uh, and mutual acknowledgement has, uh, has not yet taken, taken place. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so each side blames each other, but not so much the Americans then? Well, I, I wouldn't say that anyone lets the Americans off the hook, but I think mm. that um, 
partly just because the Vietnamese communists can claim unambiguously to have defeated the United States. Um, it's much easier for them to be a bit more magnanimous, I suppose. Sure. Um, many people take a, a kind of great pleasure in welcoming Americans to the country and uh, reminiscing about the wartime uh, experience. But I, I just don't think there's, and I don't want to oversimplify this because there really are people who suffered horrifically as a result of mm. American intervention. But I just don't think there's that same sort of bitterness and uh, buried tension, either at the political level or the personal level with the United States, the way that there, um, that there very much is, especially in the South, when uh, loyalties were really divided between native Southern communists and, uh, and the representatives of the anti-communist government in Saigon. Mm, fascinating. There's, there's so much to unpick with this, Sean, and I think this is going to be a, 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 a two-parter. Yeah. I think we're going to break this down into two parts, this particular episode. So it's been a fascinating conversation and I have learned an awful lot and I'm very glad to have been able to ask you these questions and have this discussion with you because it really does, like I said earlier on, illustrate just how complex values are at a macro level and also at an individual level as well. There's so much going on and, and it is it is heartening to hear that there is at least some, I don't know if you could call it forgiveness, because I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but at least that there is a lack of bitterness and resentment where you might assume there to have been. I think that's that's something at least that's quite heartening. And it's nice to see, like you said, that Vietnam is open for business and that people are traveling over there from the West as well. So maybe, dare I say, it, were, were there even some positive outcomes from, from the war over the long term? Oh, you, you've put me on the spot there. <laughs> I am not of the view that any of that was that any of that would have been precluded without the war sure. having happened. Maybe that's sure. that's a bit of a jumble, but I, I don't think yeah. we needed the war to get to that point, if you like. Of course, of um, course. Uh, I, I just don't want to underscore how destructive it was. How many people mm. died or suffered great misery as a result. Um, but I, I very much agree with you that it is uh, it is extremely welcoming that these tensions, at least between the United States and Vietnam, uh, are not what they were, and that um, young people in Vietnam have a chance to live uh, very different lives than uh, than their grandparents did. Yeah, and I think that's a great place to end it. Is that people now have a have a chance? We have choices. We can choose about how we engage with issues, and I think that it behooves us. At the, the domestic level in our own countries in our own politics in our own viewpoints how we express those viewpoints in the ballot box that we do seek for peace and that we appreciate that actually our views in western countries powerful countries can have a serious impact on people across the world and that we really take that into consideration and we take that very seriously as a point of not just citizenship in our own nation states but citizens of the world as well. I think it's very important that we bear this in mind. So Sean Fear, thank you so much for your time and your insight on the Real Clear Values podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. It's uh, wonderful to have the chance to chat with you and uh, and to engage with your audience as well. I am sorry this went a bit long. I will say it's not the first time I've done a podcast that went more than the intended number of episodes, but uh, I just love talking about Vietnamese history. And I, I hope your audience will find the, the level of depth that we got into to, be, to have been merited. Thanks again. 
there's absolutely no need for apologies, Sean. It's been it's been a fantastic episode or a couple of episodes that really does get into the complexity, and that's what we want to do. We don't want to oversimplify. We want to dig into this and really help people to appreciate just the level of complexity that is involved in human values. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to threestewardships.com or message me directly to tom at threestewardships.com. That's tom at threestewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.